Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host, Tiffen, and I started this podcast because I realized that most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly help protect nature and biodiversity. So together, we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday lives. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Melanie Joy, a Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in relationships, communication, and social transformation. She's the author of several books, including the best-selling Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. She's also the founding president of Beyond Carnism, an organization working to expose and transform carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. The episode is a bit longer than usual this week, as Melanie and I had so much to cover. We started by discussing the psychology behind systems of oppression, such as carnism or patriarchy. We then spoke about Melanie's formula for a better world, which she developed to help people cultivate healthier relationships with others, with the natural world, and with themselves. She shared a lot of very practical advice on how to have effective conversations to drive systemic change, and also how to nurture your relationship with yourself. One of the things she said that really stayed with me is that the world needs the people who care to be healthy, self-connected individuals who are going to stay in this work for the long haul. There's actually a bit of the conversation towards the end that I've decided to save as a little pep talk to come back to whenever I feel low. And so hopefully you'll find this helpful as well. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to all the resources Melanie mentioned. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a psychologist. Um, I'm also an author. I'm, I'm best known for my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, but I've, I've written seven books. Um, my work looks at um, basically why compassionate and rational people um, support harmful practices that are often irrational, and also how to change this. Um, I specialize in the psychology of social change and also in building healthy relationships, helping people relate to other humans and non-humans and the environment and themselves more effectively. Um, and I'm also the founding president of the international NGO Beyond Carnism. Mm -hmm. Amazing, thank you for that uh, introduction. Sure. Um, and I think one of the, the things that you said somewhere that I found really interesting was that you realized uh, something was wrong with the way we treat animals at a very young age, um, if I'm not mistaken, on a family fishing trip, right? Yes. Um, and then you brought up as well this idea that your parents were teaching you um, to treat others the way you'd like to be treated, but then somehow that didn't seem to apply to um, animals, so I'm curious to hear how did that lead you to where you are today? And then also um, the kind of main things you learn along the way. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I was four years old and I, I remember this so clearly because it was, you know, I realized it was like a traumatic experience for me much later when I could, you know, connect the dots. But I was on my father's fishing boat that at the time was like my favorite place in the world to be. And um, and then I caught my first fish and I had this little, you know, fishing pole and uh, my father and mother, they were like clapping and cheering and they were reeling in the fish, helping me reel in the fish. And I just remember looking at that fish being pulled out of the water and then being thrown into this. My father always had this bucket 
for the fish that he caught, you know, and it was like this bucket of bloody water and fish flopping around and gasping. And I looked at that fish and my parents were so proud of me and I couldn't share in their joy. And I, I was too young to really understand what was happening at the time, but I just felt bad and I didn't have a name for it. I mean, looking back, I know I felt guilty and I felt sad, um, but my young brain couldn't really process what was happening. And so my body responded. And after that point, I had always, my parents told me that fish was like my favorite food. And after that point, I could never eat fish again. Even the smell of it would make me nauseous. And when my parents like tried to force feed me and I, I threw up, I just started throwing up every time fish came near me. And I mean, it's interesting to this day, I'm 56 now, um, to this day, even like seaweed, the smell of seaweed makes me nauseous. So, you know, it was years later though, that I really, um, you know, had an experience that really helped me connect the dots and led to the work that I'm doing today. Um, my parents, I mean, I think what was really contradictory for me back then, or this contradiction, contradiction I witnessed back then is that my, we had a dog and my mm -hmm. dog was like my brother, you know, he was called Fritz and everybody loved the family dog. And my parents taught me to practice the golden rule to treat others the way you would want to be treated. And like most parents, you know, they instilled in me this sense that like, of course we want to be kind to animals. I mean, my children's books were about being kind to animals, right? And here yeah. my parents were teaching me to kill animals and it, it was, something was very wrong, but it wasn't until many years later that I actually figured out what, what was going on psychologically with me and then in the broader culture. Um, so fast forward to many years later in 1989, I was 23 at the time, um, I ate a hamburger that was contaminated and um, I got really, really sick and I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics. And I, you know, I just, I stopped eating meat at that point because I was disgusted because it was like the last food that I had eaten. You know, it wasn't like some ethical decision in my mind or anything. I was just like, I can't eat meat. Um, and again, again, because I'm disgusted. And so I, I started learning about, you know, how to cook for myself and kind of became a vegetarian by accident. And, um, you know, and then of course I stumbled upon information about animal agriculture and what I learned shocked and horrified me. I just, I could not believe the extent of harm and suffering to farmed animals. It blew my mind. It was horrific. You know, and then I was learning about the impact of the environment and then on, you know, human consumers' bodies. And I was like, oh my God. But what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. You know, my friends and family, they were compassionate, rational people. Like I had been all my life, you know, and they would just like, tell me, they just, you know, would just say things like, um, you know, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. Or they'd call me, you know, a radical vegan. I shortly I became vegan shortly, you know, thereafter, a radical vegan hippie propagandist. I was like, what is going on? I mean, I, I'm helping you become aware of what can only be called a global atrocity, you know, and, and, and showing you, you know, how this is happening all around us. And you're treating me like something's wrong with me because I care and I'm trying to raise your awareness, like what? So I then, you know, ultimately, I, I, you know, I had grown up with this dog, of course, and, you know, I, I had always been a person who cared about animals. And I, I just, throughout my whole life, I never, up until that point, I never connected, you know, I never thought about how I could be petting my own dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop, right, with the other. A pork chop that had once been a 
sentient, you know, intelligent being just like my dog had been, I just didn't connect the dots. And, you know, I suddenly became aware it was like this light went on, like something is very, very wrong with the world. And of course, there are many things are wrong with the world, right? But this was just right front and center of my, my awareness all of a sudden. So I eventually enrolled in a doctoral program in psychology. And I, I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence broadly. Um, my, my later work actually focuses on this, um, you know, the psychology of oppression and social transformation, really. But I narrowed down my research to write my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. And, um, and this was what led me to identify what I came to call carnism. Carnism is it's the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. It's, it's like basically the opposite of veganism, right? We, we tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But like the only reason that we might eat pigs, but not dogs, is because we do have a belief system when it comes to eating animals, when eating animals is not a necessity, which is true for many people in the world today, people who can make their food choices freely, you know, uh, then it's a choice and choices always stem from beliefs. And so this informed my work um, that ended up becoming um, popularized essentially through my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. And, and what I did was I described the system of carnism and specifically the mentality, the psychology it creates in us so that people who are rational and compassionate uh, act against their core values and their own interests and the interests of others and in, in the interests of the world without even realizing what they're doing. And, um, you know, the goal with the book was like not to have another book on why we shouldn't eat animals, but really to talk about why we do eat animals in the first place so that people could step out of this invisible system, you know, that they don't even realize exists and, make choices, food choices that reflect what they authentically think and feel rather than the, what they've been taught to think and feel. Um, you know, and I know your interest is, you know, really in our relationship with nature and the environment as well. And mm -hmm. we can talk about that if you want. And, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll pause here because I just said a lot. And if you'd like, <laughs> I can tell you and, and listeners a little bit about how carnism affects us psychologically and, and what that does to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, please. I think that would be that would be really interesting because, um, yeah, I, I remember reading about this in your book. And one of the things that you said that I found so powerful and, and interesting. Well, first of all, I do resonate with a lot of what mm -hmm. you said in your story, because I had a very similar uh, path where also when I was uh -huh. a little girl, I was realizing the impact of, um, you know, of everything we do on animals and, and the fact that we're eating animals and that it's so contradictory with a lot of the stories we're told even you know like the films we watch when we're kids I, I was a big mm -hmm. fan of Disney and then you see Bambi and you see all these characters and then you're told but you should eat them as well and that, that's right, so right. difficult as a child to hear that so and, and then also came to that realization and everything um but yeah I, I love what you said in your book about how carnism is this invisible um, ideology and how also you made that link with the patriarchy and how we can only start dismantling that system of oppression um, once we've made it visible and put a name on it. So it's almost like the first step, right? 
Um, so yeah, if you can talk to it a bit more, that would be uh, amazing. Sure, sure. I mean, it's definitely a step, and um, and yeah, absolutely. So, so carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals, is um, it's a special kind of system, right? Uh, it's what's called a dominant system, as is patriarchy, right? So, dominant meaning that its tenets, its teachings, are so widespread that they're like invisible, they're woven through the structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, you know, and so on. So, you know, and, and they affect all of our social institutions, you know, medicine, business, government, religion, and so on. And so when we study nutrition, for example, we actually study carnistic nutrition, like mm -hmm. the system is really entrenched. When we're born into a, a widespread or a dominant system like carnism, we inevitably absorb that system's logic as our own. We learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. We internalize it, just like we internalize patriarchy, for example, or other widespread systems that we're born into. Carnism is also a violent system. It's actually a system of oppression. It's meat cannot be procured without violence and, and egg and dairy production cause like extensive harm to animals. And it's, it is literally constructed in the same way that other oppressive systems, patriarchy, classism, racism, and so on are constructed. Right. And, you know, of course the victims of these systems will always have unique experiences. The, the experience of the victims will always be unique, but the systems themselves are structurally similar. And most importantly, the mentality that drives those systems is the same. The mentality that enables the violence is the same. The very same mentality that causes us to support harm to other humans and to support harmful oppressive systems is the mentality that causes us to support harm to other animals. And so because carnism, like other oppressive systems, is, uh, is, it runs counter to most people's core values, right? Values of justice or fairness, right? Or compassion. It, most people would never willingly support the system. Like most people would be so incredibly opposed to carnism if they really knew what was going on and what was happening to farmed animals, right? And so what carnism needs to do, like other systems, is to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. These are ways of thinking, basically, that distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural empathy from the animals we've classified as edible, for example, so that we act against these values without knowing what we're doing. So let me give you an example. Imagine that you are biting into a juicy hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and says, by the way, that meat is not actually beef. It comes from golden retrievers. Now, chances are, what you just thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. What you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. And so your behavior changes, right? Rather than continuing to eat the hamburger, you probably want to throw it in the trash and maybe even take to the streets in protest. This is because your perceptions, your psychology hasn't been distorted when it comes to golden retrievers because you haven't been influenced by carnism to think of them as, as food. So carnism uses a, a lot of different defense mechanisms. One of them is invisibility, right? Mm -hmm. Which you yeah. mentioned, right? And the, the, or one is one of them is actually denial. And you know, if we deny there's a problem in the first place, then we don't have to do anything about it. But the main way denial gets 
manifested or expressed is through invisibility. So the victims are, of course, kept out of sight and therefore conveniently out of public consciousness. I mean, think about this. In just one day, more farmed animals are slaughtered globally than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. And yet most of us never see a single individual who becomes our food, mm -hmm. right? So physical invisibility, but, but the system itself remains invisible. And so, you know, like talking about eating animals without being aware of carnism is like talking about sexual harassment without being aware of patriarchy. It's like impossible to really have a rational conversation about mm -hmm. the issue because we internalize carnism. What it does is it causes us to feel defensive, resistant against, defensive against anyone or anything that would help us get out of the carnistic box. Anyone or anything that challenges what we feel is our right to eat animals. We all of us born into the carnist, a carnistic system internalize these psychological defense mechanisms. And so it's, it's very helpful to become aware of them, you know, because once you become aware of them, they have less power over you. And I, I can give you examples of a, a couple of others if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that would be great because I'm also really interested in the idea of, um, I, is there a difference between becoming aware of this kind of, ideology and system of carnism versus because my my feeling is that especially nowadays with you know the documentaries and social media and everything I feel like a lot of a lot more people are at least somehow aware of what's happening to to farm animals and maybe more um yeah still choose to ignore it so is there a difference for you um in you know, because is, is it that becoming aware of this carnism and, and the kind of ideology behind it would be more impactful or or how, how do you see that? I mean, that's a really good question and there's no like right answer, right? So yeah. there are plenty of people who never learned about carnism and yet they saw these documentaries or they learned about the issue of animal, you know, animal agriculture and they stopped eating animals and became a part of a movement to actually change this practice, you know, and, um, you know, to basically end carnism. So you don't have to be aware of carnism in order to help end carnism. At the same time, it's very helpful to be aware of carnism um, for two reasons. One reason is because carnism is structured so that we remain unaware of what's right in front of us. Carnism is structured to pull us back into our cocoon of unknowing, even when we start to wake up. So Plenty of people, you know, seek these graphic videos and are like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then the next day they've forgotten about it enough so that they're at the McDonald's drive-through. You know, carnism pulls us back into this cocoon of, of unknowing and these social carnistic norms. And so the more you're aware of how your psychology, your mentality has been hijacked by the system, the better able you are to resist getting pulled back in. And of course, if you're somebody who's already stepped out of the carnistic mentality and you wanna help people move away from it themselves, you know, you wanna promote a move to a plant-based, you know, way of being or veganism, um, it's very helpful to understand the mentality that keeps people locked into this sort mm -hmm. of defensive stance. Um, because otherwise you start talking about the issue and you just end up in a battle of defenses without realizing that the problem is not the person you're talking to. The problem is the entity of carnism that's basically hijacked their psyche that's speaking through them. So you need to learn to talk to the person beneath the defenses and the mentality. And I can talk about that a little bit later, but let me just give you 
you a couple of examples of these carnistic defenses. Because um, when we become aware of them, they lose some of their power over us, right? So for example, um, carnism teaches us to think of farmed animals as abstractions. The name of the defense doesn't matter, right? This is a defense mechanism. So it's a cognitive distortion to be more specific. So what this means is that we, for instance, learn to think that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. We mm -hmm. learn to think of farmed animals as lacking any personality, any individuality of their own, even though this of course isn't true. Pigs are more intelligent than dogs. Pigs have lives that matter to them. They are sentient just like all living beings are. And yet, we think of them very differently. And this process of turning them into an abstraction is a distancing mechanism. It makes it much, much easier to support the slaughter and killing of them and, and to basically put their bodies in our mouths, which we would most of us would not be able to do with animals whose individuality we really truly recognize. Um, another example of a defense is uh, objectification. So carnism teaches us to see farmed animals as objects. So when we look at our the chicken on our plate, you know, we refer to that as something rather than someone. Um, or we learn to justify eating animals. Justification is another defense. And, you know, the way that we learn to justify eating animals is by learning to believe that the myths of eating animals are the facts of eating animals. You know, there's this vast mythology surrounding eating animals that all of us have you know, learned to believe are somehow universal truths, but they're not. They're a, a set of a widely held set of opinions, you know, and but all of these myths fall under what I call the three ends of justification. Eating animals mm -hmm. is normal, natural and necessary. These are not facts. These are myths. Um, and they are the same justifications or arguments that have been used, not surprisingly, perhaps, to justify violent practices throughout hi human history, from you know, male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. Mm -hmm. So when we recognize these, you know, defenses for what they are, we're less likely to get, you know, to stay brainwashed essentially, and more likely to really start thinking for ourselves and you know, thinking more critically. Mm -hmm. That's that's super helpful. And then I think, do you have any kind of practical examples of how you then turn that into a helpful conversation with someone? Because one of the questions I, I had as well that I wanted to ask you is that I know a lot of very kind, compassionate people who, you know, still pick a non-vegan or vegetarian option in a restaurant, even though, for example, I, I live in London. In London, it's really difficult to find a restaurant without a vegan option on the menu mm -hmm. or at least vegetarian. And so mm -hmm. I think to me, it, it you know, not even a question. It, if, if you have the choice, why not pick compassion and, and the more ethical uh, choice, which is also healthier for you and better for the planet. So, right. um, but yet I still see people who I know are, are good people <laughs> and compassionate. Um, pick meat or, or animal products just because I don't know, it tastes better or it's just out of habit. So how do you bring that up? And then kind of, do you have any tips for people who want to start that conversation in a way that is be help, going to be helpful and not be met with um, a lot of resistance or, or um, you know, people just ignoring you or, or yeah. being angry? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's such an important question because, um, you know, if the people who are really working to raise awareness about this huge problem in the world of, you know, like uh, uh, eating animals, right, and animal mm -hmm. agriculture, and are really, really struggling to have productive conversations around it, you know, that that puts 
us at a, at a huge disadvantage when we're trying to work for change. And I mean, it's hard enough to have a conversation, you know, an effective conversation when you're talking about something that's really like simple and straightforward, because most of us have like never gotten a single lesson. I say this all the time. Most of us have never gotten a single lesson in how to relate healthfully or how to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though, of course, we've, you know, most of us have, you know, had to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never u- need to use, right? So mm-hmm. it's really striking. We struggle in this area of healthy relationality and healthy or effective communication simply because most of us have had to figure out how to do it. And, you know, and then when you add this layer on of like defensiveness around like a very like emotionally charged ethical issue, it can become very, very difficult to have these conversations. And so um, uh, we actually at my organization, Beyond Carnism, we have, um, our Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. And that basically is for anybody who wants to talk about the issue, lots of resources and tips for how how to do so. Um, The most important thing I would say to start with is recognizing the defensiveness for what it is So many people, vegans, for example, or people who want to promote, you know, just promote awareness, even if they're not vegan, um, they get incredibly frustrated because they think the facts are going to sell behavioral change. Like they think, oh, if only you knew the truth, capital T, capital T, you'd never eat animals again. And then they show the truth. And then the person is, like I said before, at the McDonald's drive in the next day. And it's like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? But when you understand how this system kind of like hijacks people's psyches and how, you know, many people do not transition out of eating animals, um, for, for reasons that have very little to do with taste. I mean, sometimes, you know, there are reasons that have to do with taste, but, um, you know, it's sometimes the meaning people make, people want to be part of the norm, they're afraid their relationships are going to be affected and so on and so forth. So one of the things I I recommend is um, if you are advocating, you know, a shift toward more plant-based eating, ask people to be as vegan as possible rather than go vegan. Mm -hmm. It's the activist Henry Spears said that if you're, you know, if you ask for all or nothing in a negotiation, you're probably going to come out with nothing. So, you know, recommend that. And when you are talking, just talk about your own story and you don't have to say, you know, please eat vegan, but you can say if you're dining with somebody, right. And by the way, when you're in the process of eating and somebody's eating animals, it's usually not a good time. To have <laughs> not a good time anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> but beforehand, when you're talking about restaurants and where to go, mm-hmm. Would you like to go to a vegan restaurant? Would you like to go to a vegetarian restaurant? Why not? You know, and, oh, I, I'd love to share this food with you, but always, um, it's always a really good idea when you are talking about the issue to talk about it through your own story. Nobody can make your story wrong, you know? Yeah. And usually the conversation opens up because somebody says, oh, you're vegan. Why are you vegan? And very often the answer that vegans give is like all the reasons the other person should be vegan. Did you know that animal exploitation, the environment, <laughs> right? Yeah. Share your story. Like I just did, you know, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. I like, you know, grew up in this situation and this is what happened to me and invite people into the conversation that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's uh, super helpful. I'm going to try doing that <laughs> more often. Another question I had was, could you tell us a bit more about the formula for a better world that you developed? And I think you mentioned this a little bit already, but would love to hear more about this idea of healthy relating as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I had mentioned that my my work, um, 
you know, ex extends beyond the psychology of eating animals. Why We Love Dogs was based on my doctoral research, but I've since expanded that. And uh, the other hat that I have worn throughout my career is that of a, a person who, a relationship coach, person who specializes in relationships. And, and so I, I've been writing about relationships and also about social change more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, when you think about some of the most pressing problems, right? Not only in our lives, but also in our world, um, like war, poverty, um, domestic violence or abuse, uh, racism, patriarchy, carnism, animal exploitation, climate change, I could go on and on, right? We tend to think of these as distinct problems, but when you look at them, they all really share a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction or um, dysfunctional ways of relating, right? Between social groups, for example, between humans and other humans, between humans and other animals, between humans and the environment, you know, and, and we're always relating to ourselves as well, you know, between us and ourselves. So relational dysfunction is a, a common denominator driving all forms of injustice, essentially, um, and uh, a lot of suffering. And what this means is that a common denominator in helping to transform all of these problems is the opposite, is, well, essentially relational health or relational literacy, to be specific. Relational literacy is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. When we learn how to relate in a way that's healthy, we literally, can literally transform our lives, the groups that we're a part of, our relationships, and contribute to helping transform our world. So mm -hmm. relational literacy is based on a number of you know, principles and tools. I have a, a one-stop guide to, to building relational literacy. It's my book called Getting Relationships Right. Mm -hmm. um, but all of these principles and tools are, are based on this one formula. I call this the formula for healthy relating. So in a healthy interaction or relationship, you know, a relationship is basically a series of interactions, you know, and this of course also applies to communication. Communication is the primary way we relate. So in a healthy interaction or relationship, we practice integrity and honor dignity. So let me just unpack this. Practicing integrity means practicing our core values, um, most notably of compassion or caring and justice. To simplify this even further, we practice respect. We treat the other individual, you know, or ourselves, because we're always relating to ourselves, um, the way that we would want to be treated in their position. So when we practice integrity and honor dignity, oh, let me, sorry, I forgot to unpack dignity. Dignity is your sense of, or our sense of inherent worth. Um, when you feel dignity, that means you feel no less worthy than anyone else of being treated with respect or of occupying space on this planet. So when we honor dignity, we think of and treat others as though they're fundamentally worthy. When we practice integrity and honor dignity, this leads to a greater sense of connection and also security in our interaction or in our relationship. And you can think about like, you know, uh, any relationship in your life that you think is a good relationship, chances are, you know, you trust that the other person will practice integrity towards you and honors your dignity and you probably feel secure and connected with them and, and vice versa, right? The opposite is, you know, violating integrity and harming dignity. And this leads to a sense of disconnection and insecurity. And so 
like most things, maybe everything in life, you know, the formula exists on a spectrum. It's not either, or it's not either your interaction is healthy or not. It's, it's more or less healthy or dysfunctional. And the beauty of the formula is that you can come back to it at any moment in time. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you feel like some conversations going sideways, or you just feel something's off, pause and ask yourself, you know, am I practicing the formula? Am I perceiving this person as, you know, fundamentally, you know, like worthy? Um, and do I feel like they're practicing the formula toward me? Because a lot of times we're on the receiving end of relational dysfunction and we don't realize that we are. And so we just, you know, allow ourselves to be harmed, abused or, or whatever. Um, the formula applies to all forms of relating and, you know, to brief interactions, to long-term relationships, you know, as I said, and to how we relate to other animals as well and, and ourselves. And it's, it's interesting because it's not only individual attitudes and behaviors that exist on this, you know, that, that, uh, or individuals, the formula doesn't only reflect and guide individual behaviors and attitudes. It systems also fall somewhere on this spectrum of the formula, like a system could be your workplace, you know, and you think about it, like your workplace has its own personality, its own gestalt, you know, its own feel mm -hmm. and a workplace can be more or less healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. So in a relational workplace, people feel more secure and connected. More people practice the formula in a non-relational workplace. You know, this is often where you have like abusive dynamics happening your family is a system, right? And it can be more or less relational. And of course we have social systems and social systems like carnism and patriarchy, racism and so on are what I call non-relational systems. These are systems that are really like organized around violating the formula, uh, not practicing the formula. And if you think about it, like it, it's, it's, you know, very often those of us who are working in groups or social movements, trying to end depression, for instance, trying to end, you know, mitigate climate change, for instance. Um, if we haven't learned relational literacy ourselves, our own movements, our own groups can end up cannibalizing themselves, you know, because we can, without awareness of relational literacy, you know, without building relational literacy, we often default to what we've learned. And what we've learned is not particularly healthy in terms of how we relate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's so much to unpack there, but I think it's it's so interesting as well, the fact that it's a formula that applies to your relationships, as you were saying, with other humans, but then also extends to animals and even broader things, like you were saying, the workplace. But um, what, kept, um, what I kept thinking about where you were saying this as well is the planet and how we've also like personified, you know, Mother Earth. And it's actually, I think, really helpful to think of it in, in that sense as well, that we do have that relationship. And are we treating Mother Earth or animals the way we would like to be treated? Most likely not. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really helpful framework to, to, to think about that and kind of um, think about what we need to change in our behaviors. <laughs> A, a question I had uh, following on that is how, so one thing you th you said that I thought was also really impactful is that we inherit this non-relational mentality from the various systems we're part of. And I like this idea of inheriting. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, how, how do you think as individuals, we can navigate that and unlearn these behaviors in, in, a, in a kind of practical sense do you have any tips on that and then also looking at the bigger picture how do you think we can break the cycle and 
drive systemic change to um, ensure that the next generation don't inherit this mentality? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways to do this. And there are a lot of great groups that are doing work to, to help shift the way that we operate. I would say that from my perspective, and, and you know, this obviously speaks to my area of work, I think it's very, very important to become, number one, become aware of the systems in the first place. You know, we, if you're not, the, these non-relational systems stay alive in large part because people don't see them. They're not aware of them or they become aware of them. So, you know, racism would be a good example. You know, fortunately, you know, I shouldn't say people, you know, people who are not harmed by the systems and who are perpetuating the harm in the systems tend to not see the systems and not see the harm, right? When we're in a position of power, you know, we have the power to not see somebody. I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember who actually said that, but it's the power to not see when we have privilege and power in a system, right? So mm -hmm. a white person, you know, in a, in a, in a racist system, for example. And so one of the things that's so important is to, to become aware, like to recognize it's like the information is out there. Um, and if you, and, and listen to people, you know, who are, who have less power, you know, listen to women and people of other genders, if you're a man, when they're talking about what their experience is, and, you know, recognize that you will have a tendency because the system of patriarchy conditions all of us to believe that, you know, if you happen to be a man, um, you know, your opinion carries more weight, um, you know, you, to, to so many things. There's a lot of great information out there um, to help people become aware of these systems. You don't have to take a course, a college course, on systems of oppression, you know, mm -hmm. you really one of the one of the really key ways to um, to build your awareness can be also through building relational literacy and learning about relational literacy because it's almost like a backdoor in, you know, mm -hmm. to, to these conversations. It's it's useful, and I think it's very important to be aware of the basics of each of these systems to the best of your ability, because otherwise you're going to be, you're going to keep falling back into this unconscious way of operating within these systems. And that means if you have more power in the system, they've done a lot of studies on this, when you have more power in a given dynamic, you're likely to abuse that power, even if you're a person who doesn't believe in abusing power. So if you're the boss, for instance, you're much more likely to abuse your power, you know, when you're relating to your staff person than vice versa. So building relational literacy is incredibly helpful because when we learn just the basics of how to relate to other individuals, and this applies again to and to ourselves, we can apply this to every interaction. We can apply this to like our perspective. It changes our perspective on the world. You mm -hmm. know, if we weren't living in the relational dark ages, basically, which mm -hmm. we still are, you know, because <laughs> our level of our collective level of relational literacy is so low. If we were not living in the relational dark ages, we would not vote for relationally dysfunctional and toxic political leaders. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't support non-relational policies and practices. We would recognize them for what they are. These are policies and practices that harm dignity. These are policies and practices that we would not want like directed toward ourselves. And yet we're okay when they're being carried out against other groups of individuals, other human groups, other animals, for instance, the environment. Mm -hmm. So when you learn relational literacy, you kind of, you shift from perceiving and treating others in the world 
in a, a transactional way. You don't see them as instruments to be used or, you know, you don't see your, your interactions as like some sort of an exchange. What do I get from this, you know, to a relational way. You know, when we start relating in a relational way, we come to our conversations and we come to our decisions about who to vote for, for example, um, you know, from a place of genuine integrity, wanting to honor the dignity of others and really wanting to create less harmful and more harmonious outcomes. And that changes everything. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that. And you're so right. I think you said before, this should be taught in schools instead of, or next to geometry. <laughs> next to that. geometry. Yeah, geometry yeah. matters. Geometry matters. But <laughs> but does, geometry but people, people not being able to do geometry is not the reason that we have the problems we have <laughs> in the world today. Yeah, that, that's such a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, on a more personal note, I wanted to ask as well. Um, so I think these topics can be quite heavy and often sad to deal with, especially um, when we're thinking a bit more about, um, well, I, I think all systems of oppression, really, if you start really looking into that and looking into what's happening and, and taking it almost on a micro level and then kind of feeling the, um, the suffering of those individuals who are being oppressed, be that uh, people or animals. Um, and so a question I had was, how do you manage to to stay positive, obviously working with that? And then where do you find hope? Well, I mean, it's a it's a good question. Um, it, it's it's been a learning experience for me um, mm -hmm. I, when I was much younger. It was it was a lot harder. Um, and I have learned along the way, you know, the the importance of, um, first of all, cultivating and maintaining healthy connections in my life. And there's lots of studies that show that people who have healthy relationships with others, you know, basically fare better in every mm -hmm. aspect of life. And they're less likely to be traumatized, um, you know, by traumatic experiences. And many people who are awake to the fact that we are living in the midst of a, a, a number of different global atrocities, you know, become traumatized from, from what they see and what they know and um, staying, you know, committing to helping create a healthy community around yourself. I mean, even if you feel isolated, you could find people online, you know, to create community with, but really committing to building healthy relationships in your life can go a really long way. And that includes your relationship with yourself and applying the formula to yourself. The people who suffer the most, you know, when faced with the atrocities that they're working to try to, um, you know, end are, are often the people who are the most self-denying and are not taking care of themselves, you know, in the process. So practice the people who don't practice the formula toward themselves, you know, and they can say to themselves, oh my God, you know, why do I deserve a day off? Why do I deserve like this decadent meal, you know, when so much suffering is happening in the world? Well, the world needs people, you know, the people who care to be healthy, self-connected individuals who are going to stay in this work for the long haul, not people who are traumatized and becoming embittered and misanthropic and are at risk of burning out. So take really good care, you know, self-care is huge and not in isolation practicing, you know, connection and community is really very important um, and building healthy relationships. This should not be more stuff on your to-do list, you know, just basically one simple thing you can do is, you know, every day ask yourself, do I feel in balance? You know, not do I feel good, but do I feel in balance? A life in mm -hmm. balance is a life worth living. It's a sustainable life. 
And if you don't feel in balance, ask yourself what you need to get back into balance. And so maybe you notice that you're just, you're overstimulated. You've got too much work. And instead of saying, I should be in balance, you know, I've got a lot on my plate, but I should be in balance, or I haven't had a day off, but I should be in balance, or I've been extroverting all the time, but other people do that too. I should be in balance. Well, I'm not in balance. What do I need to get in balance? Honor who you are and what you need to, to be balanced in your life. Um, I have a lot of, we have a lot of resources that people can link to from carnism.org for self-care and, you know, other techniques for uh, building sustainability. Um, I would also say that it's really, really important to not let yourself get caught up in perfectionism because a lot of the times that people do start to despair and feel helpless um, is when they feel like they, they approach the world. These are, you know, usually activists, advocates, you know, who are just chronically frustrated because of the state of the world and the state of the world we know is, is an absolute mess. There's no question about it. At the same time, we need to relate to the world based on the way it is, not the way we wish it were. You know, if like it's raining and cold outside and you go out dressed for sun and warmth because you wish it were sunny and warm, you're going to be incredibly frustrated. And so, you know, you get, we have to sort of like not expect things to be different than they are and give yourself, you know, permission to put your boundaries wherever you need to. Right. And this is, this comes back to the self-care, give yourself permission to say no when something is too much for you and, and learn, like, again, building relational literacy can go a long way. Cause when you relate to yourself in a healthy way, you protect your boundaries and, you know, you, you keep yourself, you're much more likely to keep yourself healthy. Um, I could say a ton more cause I have like, this subject is very near and dear to my heart and very important. Um, I'll say just one more thing though. If you're a person who's just learning about these issues, you know, and, and you start to feel overwhelmed and say, oh my God, you know, it's too much. Get active, like just get active. You don't have to solve every single problem. There's so much need out there. Find something where you feel like you're making a difference because one of the things that really is soul crushing is to be aware of the suffering in the world and feel like you're not doing anything at all to offset it. And there are lots of ways you can get active. Lily Cole has this great book, um, Who Cares Wins. It's fantastic. I mean, she kind of like, it's amazing how much material she covers in it, but like mm -hmm. you that book will give you a gazillion different sort of causes to pick from. Um, and, you know, if you're not sure what cause area you want to focus on, you know, where you want to focus your support, you might want to look into effective altruism, which is a social movement that is designed to help people like really think about and identify they've actually done it for you. You know, what are the big areas that most need the support? What can, what, what can one person contribute to that will make the biggest difference based on who you are and what kind of contribution you, you can make. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. That's so much information and so helpful. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all of that. I feel oh, like I'm going to come back to that a little bit whenever I need a, a pep talk, because it's uh, yeah, a lot of, of great advice. So uh, thank you. And I'll also make sure to include everything you mentioned in the show notes so that people can visit the, the link. Thank you. Um, I had a final recommendation uh, to ask for, or actually two of them, but I, I feel like you've already mentioned the book. So I don't know if you, I ask all of my guests, uh, what's the best book they ever read and why? So I don't know if you have another one you want to mention. And then also, who do you think I should interview next on the podcast? 
Um, okay, great question. I mean, I don't have a favorite book. I love books that are written by Thich Nhat Hanh. Terence Real has a new book called Us, and it's it's great for you know healthy relationality, um, building healthy relationality. Animal Liberation by Peter Singer is a classic that mm-hmm. I think is really worth reading for people who are interested in in you know getting involved with animals and uh, supporting supporting animals, or even if you're not interested, I think everybody should read that book. Um, you know, this is of course apart from my books. Why love dogs? <laughs> I was going to say, right? obviously, your but, books as well. <laughs> um, I also have a new book coming out next year called How to End Injustice Everywhere. And it's it's about, you know, working to whatever whatever cause area you're interested in, how to build relational literacy and, you know, work work toward, you know, doing doing as much good as possible. Um, and then you had asked about, recommend, did you just ask me about recommendations for- Yeah, if you have a suggestion, people. it's also something I ask uh, all of my guests just to uh, spark ideas of other conversations that could be had. <laughs> um, okay, so we had on our podcast, Just Beings, we had Dolly Chug. She's her, mm-hmm. She has a recent book that's called A More Just Future. Her work mm-hmm. is really excellent. She's a social psychologist um, at the NYU Stern School of Business. She does very interesting work. She's an expert in the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary people, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazing. I, yeah, we also interviewed, um, and I've done interviews with them for their po- podcast. You may have heard of the Happy Pair. They're oh, yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love them. I mean, they're great. <laughs> they have a great, great podcast. They've just got so much knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. And Zoe Weil, if you haven't heard of her, she's the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. Um, she's pretty, pretty amazing. She's got a couple of TED Talks and um, you can learn about her, but she's uh, she's doing amazing work to really revolutionize how we approach education and how we can approach education in a way that really helps transform the world. Amazing. Well, I'll research all of that. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. That's super helpful. Sure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Great. So um, I'm not going to take up more of your time, but thank you so much. That was so, so uh, insightful. And I feel like there's so much information. So I'm actually really looking forward to editing and listening back to the episode to really integrate all of that. Um, oh, thank so, yeah. you. Thank you for your time and uh, have a lovely rest of your day. Yeah, thank you too. And you're so easy to talk to. I could talk to you like the oh, hours really? flew by. Oh. So I really, I just, I, I love your manner. So thank you. Oh, it's been a great interview you. experience. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. And likewise, I feel like <laughs> I had so many follow-up questions popping up in my head. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you so, so much. And uh, yeah, speak soon. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Thank you, listeners. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. And as mentioned in the intro, I think that's one I will be coming back to um, quite regularly. Don't forget to check out the show notes and follow us on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast for all updates, more stories, and ways for you to take action. If you want to help the podcast, I would also be super grateful if you could leave a little review on Apple or Spotify and maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. Thank you so, so much in advance and see you next week. Thanks for caring and sending you lots of love.